This is Mayo Clinic Talks, the curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We now have a variety of tests to assess a patient who presents with chest pain. These tests include such basic assessment tools such as a resting ECG to the most invasive of cardiac tests, a coronary angiogram. But there are now multiple tests in between these two extremes. Each have their own specific benefits. So which test or tests are indicated for patients with chest pain? What are the potential risks of these tests to our patients? We'll discuss these questions and more with cardiologist Dr. Katie Young from the Department of Cardiovascular Disease from the Mayo Clinic. The topic for today's podcast is chest pain. What's the best test? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Katie, welcome and thank you for joining me today. This is going to be a fun topic. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I work a lot in uh, general cardiology in our community practice, and so we use these tests quite frequently. So it's great to be able to share information about it. Well, you're well qualified to discuss this topic. You know, it seems like when I first started practice, and that was about when the stethoscope was invented, <laughs> we basically had three tests, you know, resting ECG, treadmill exercise test, and coronary angiogram. Now we've got quite a few options, and it's kind of confusing to uh, figure out which is the best test for the patient. And I'm hoping you'll enlighten me and our audience with uh, with some information on this. So let's start by talking about what's the general approach that we should be using when we assess a patient with chest pain and then trying to determine which specific test is indicated. That's a great way to start. And I think the really comes back to starting at the basics. So really getting a good history from the patient. So I think the first thing you're trying to determine when you're speaking with the patient is, do you think this is cardiac chest pain? Obviously, the differential for chest pain can be quite broad, and we always want to maintain that broad differential. But what we're really trying to determine, I think what is on our mind is trying to determine, do we think this is cardiac chest pain? And then how worried are we? Mm -hmm. So just briefly, a few things to know, because there's some a new guideline document that was out in 2021 on chest pain that redefines some of our terminology. So at the basics so of chest pain or angina occurs when there's a mismatch, mismatch between oxygen supply and demand. And that can occur in many settings, but again, what we're talking about and focusing on today is evaluating epicardial or large vessel coronary artery disease. Of course, there's lots of other things that can cause pain, even within car you know cardiac disease, but we're going to focus really on that atherosclerotic heart disease today. And chest pain from cardiac chest pain or angina really has hallmark features. It's generally substernal generally provoked with exertion or emotional stress, and then relieved by rest or nitroglycerin in a patient that perhaps has that prior diagnosis. Now, it's important to ask about referred pain and associated symptoms. And certainly women, diabetics, elderly patients, they can have more atypical, less common symptoms, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, etc. When we think about those, our descriptors are that are recommended for use are we think this is cardiac 
chest pain, meaning it meets all those criteria, and phasing out atypical, we're really trying to use the term possibly cardiac instead, and then non-cardiac, when we really think after we get our history, this does not sound like cardiac chest mm -hmm. pain. All right. Well, let's start digging into the specific tests that we have. Let's start with the most basic. What information might we expect from just getting a resting ECG? Yes, I would recommend anyone that is being seen for chest pain, that's not clearly non-cardiac. So if it's non-cardiac chest pain, you know, you're going to go and, and treat that differently. But for anyone where you think it's possibly cardiac or cardiac chest pain, obtaining a resting ECG is definitely uh, one of the things to do. And there's a few things. So obviously, if they're an active chest pain, we're looking for dynamic, you know, ischemic looking changes or something even as uh, profound as an ST elevation MI. So those are be big things that you're going to be looking for, particularly if someone's having active chest pain. But other features are important. So a normal ECG, so if the QRS is normal and the ECG is overall normal, we can be pretty reassured that the heart function is normal as well. So that's helpful information. The other thing would be if you're thinking about pericarditis, et cetera, you're going to get some of that information by looking at their ECG, as well as any major arrhythmia. If there's some arrhythmia underlying, you'd be able to screen for that just quickly with the resting ECG for all those reasons. And lastly, it helps us determine what the next best test is because someone with an abnormal ECG, some testing may not be best for them. Okay. Let's say we're an emergency room physician and we have a patient who comes in with chest pain. It's not classic chest pain representing, you know, angina, but it could be. How reassuring in that situation is a normal ECG? I am guided more by the symptoms. So if they're having active chest pain and you think it's possibly cardiac or cardiac, mm -hmm. you note that, but you're going to continue to monitor that patient. So that okay. person still needs to be monitored. Usually we trend, our, then we're getting more data. So we're trending our troponins. We're tr and with that, we usually trend ECGs, watching for changes or dynamic changes. So it's good. You're ruling out really bad things like ST elevation MI, but Mm -hmm. If the patient's still having pain, still monitoring is definitely warranted. Okay. Well, let's take it up a step. When should we start considering a stress ECG? So let's say you've, you've seen your patient, you determined that a stress test is necessary, and really that's going to be based on your pretest probability of disease. So maybe you're not actively thinking about that, but that is what you're determining when you're gathering history from the patient and, and history about their symptoms. And so stress testing in general is really most beneficial in those with intermediate pretest probability of disease when we're looking to diagnose heart artery disease. And then from that, you kind of start going into the spectrum of testing available. And an exercise ECG is generally okay if the patient can exercise, adequate exercise capacity, which we think of about five METs of activity, which is about four to five minutes on the Bruce protocol. If they have a normal ECG, so someone with a left bundle or they have a pacemaker, those would not be candidates for simply an exercise ECG. So we want them to be able to exercise, have a normal ECG, and no prior history of coronary revascularization. So 
if you can meet all those criteria, then you're starting with a treadmill ECG is reasonable. Okay. My practice is mostly elderly patients and, you know, seeing a patient who says they've had some episodes of chest pain and I've decided to do an exercise stress test. Some have arthritic limitations, so we have to use a bicycle stress test. Is that pretty much equivalent to a treadmill? Is there any major differences? We can use bicycles. The default by certainly is treadmill, but we can use bicycle and our exercise physiologists really help us determine if we're achieving that adequate functional because determination of the amount of METs and functional capacity is a little bit different when they're on a bicycle than a treadmill, but it can be possible. Okay. So when do we consider a pharmacologic stimulated stress test? Yes. And so I think First thing will be is if, you're, if your patient cannot exercise, we prefer exercise when possible because it has prognostic information as well. But if they cannot exercise, that is when you're going to go to a pharmacologic. The other big thing to remember is if your patient has a left bundle branch block or they have a ventricular pacemaker, they should go right to a, a vasodilator nuclear study. Okay. So even if they can exercise, if you're looking for ischemia and you're looking to look for coronary disease, they should still go to the vasodilator because with those underlying rhythms, we can see abnormalities and we don't know if it's just because of the left bundle or if mm -hmm. it's really coronary disease. How about a right bundle branch block? That occurs occasionally. Is that an issue? Nope, that, that is okay. It can, generally you might see that we look mainly for ischemic ECG changes mm -hmm. in those lateral leads instead, but okay. they can still exercise. All right. Are there potential risks associated with the uh, pharmacologic stress test? In general, stress testing is pretty safe. Now, exercise it may be a little bit more safer than pharmacologic, but the big severe risks such as myocardial infarction or death are, occur very, very, very rarely after stress testing. Other risks with particularly pharmacologic agents, so for instance, dobutamine, where we're increasing the heart rate and the contractility, we can see arrhythmias. That's a big risk uh, of potential and then we can see blood pressure. So either blood pressure can go high or can go low. So those are some other things that more minor, but can occur. Let's move up from here. When should we consider a nuclear cardiac stimulation test? Nuclear is widely available. It has been used for a really long time. So nuclear perfusion imaging, and we can do that with exercise or pharmacologic. In nuclear, we can use either for pharmacologic agents, we can use dobutamine or, as I mentioned, our vasodilators. So the difference there, dobutamine increases heart rate. So we get our stress by increasing the heart rate. With the vasodilators, what you're doing is vasodilating and you're looking for kind of a coronary steel phenomenon and you're looking for differences in perfusion. So you don't get as much of a heart rate increase or any sometimes with the vasodilators. So as I mentioned, I'm going to say the left bundle and ventricular paste, those would be when I automatically consider a nuclear perfusion stress test. Other times when I consider or may prefer nuclear is in someone whose heart function is maybe abnormal or they've had 
prior disease and they have a lot of regional wall motion abnormalities, as that can make it a little hard sometimes to interpret in stress echo when we're looking at, that's what we're looking at is those walls. So those times I kind of lean on and favor going for nuclear perfusion imaging. Okay. Well, you mentioned a stress echo. Let's talk about that next. When is that indicated? So stress echocardiogram, similarly, we can do exercise or pharmacologic. With stress echo, we use dobutamine as our stress agent. So dobutamine is the uh, what would be utilized in stress echo for pharmacologic agent. And the major benefit is that you're getting a structural evaluation. So here at Mayo, before we do our stress test, we actually do an abbreviated or kind of limited assessment of heart function, heart valves, and initial assessment of filling pressures. So we get that information before and after exercise. So that's the main benefit of ECHO. And because of that, you know, if someone's presenting primarily with dyspnea, and they've never had structural evaluation, a stress echocardiogram is really appealing and really kind of what I'm drawn to because I'm gonna get a lot of information with that one test. Other times would be, you know, sometimes we're specifically evaluating valve disease and we would use echocardiogram for that as well. Okay. Let's say we have a patient who we see who has had episodes of chest pain and we're like 99% certain this is ischemic cardiac pain. It seems as we're moving up the ladder here, we're getting more complexity with the tests, but we're getting more information as well. Is it still wise to start with the basic treadmill exercise test, or should we just automatically go to a stress echo or a nuclear scan, which gives us a little bit more information about which part of the heart is involved? Yeah, you raise a really good point. Adding imaging to your stress test, whether it's, you know, exercise or pharmacologic, adding the imaging really adds information about localization of ischemia. You get added information about the heart function um, and the ejection fraction. So it does add a lot of information. And it's very reasonable if your patient is in that intermediate pretest probability to go directly to an imaging test. It's actually in the guidelines. You could go straight to a stress echo nuclear or even coronary CTA. Okay. Well, let's talk about that next. That seems to be kind of the newest kid on the block. Let's talk about the CT angiogram. What indications are there for that? CT angiogram. So the thing to remember here is that we're shifting from a functional, what we describe as a functional stress test, and now we're looking at anatomy. So coronary CTA is an anatomical evaluation, and its strong suit is that we're really, truly, you know, defining the coronary anatomy, looking for degree of stenosis in those vessels, and in someone where maybe you're worried about and also want to exclude aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, you can do all of that in one scan. And so that's really a strong suit of coronary CTA. But it is a test you could consider initially in a patient as well. Things to remember though, so coronary CTAs, there's radiation and contrast exposure. The patient needs to be able to lie flat and kind of handle very brief breath breath holds. It's a CT, so it's very quick. There are pre-medications, so they usually use in the outpatient setting some beta blocker to get the heart rate lower 
and nitroglycerin to open the coronary arteries to visualize them better. So you need to make sure the patient can tolerate all of that. But if you're looking for an anatomical evaluation, and I think of doing that in a, my younger patient population, when I'm suspecting less disease burden or less plaque burden, or maybe in someone who I've already done a stress test on, but it was inconclusive or indeterminate, I may then go for that added information about their anatomy with the coronary CTA. Okay. With the coronary artery CT angiogram, we're actually looking at the coronary arteries. So how does that compare with the more traditional coronary angiogram? Are the results pretty much the same? Invasive coronary angiography remains the gold standard for definitive diagnosis of severity of plaque in the heart arteries. You are still visualizing that with CT imaging, so CT coronary angiogram. It's important to remember that on CT, we can have issues with determining severity of disease in the setting of extensive calcified plaque. So calcium in the arteries can cause blooming on CT and cause us to overestimate stenosis. And also in the setting of stents, it can be difficult to visualize flow through those on CT. You know, certainly both provide anatomical information, but invasive coronary angiography remains our gold standard. And oftentimes patients that have a lot of abnormalities noted or indeterminate findings on CT coronary angiogram, we still need to look at doing an invasive coronary angiogram. And if you would do an invasive coronary angiogram, can you do a stent at the same time or would that be a second procedure? Generally, we can do them at the same time. Okay. So generally that is planned. Sometimes we may do things a little differently, but most times, yes, it can be done in the same procedure. Okay. Well, there are certainly some potential complications of an invasive coronary angiogram. Could you kind of uh, review those with us? Yeah. As you said, invasive. So there is certainly a little bit more risk. The main risk include vascular access issues. So we use radial arteries access more frequently now, but um, it, it, femoral artery access is still used. But vascular access injury or bleeding complications can occur. And then there still can be risks of inducing types of arrhythmias during the procedure and low risk also of things such as stroke, myocardial infarction, and death. Diagnostic coronary angiograms are relatively low risk. Certainly when an intervention is then performed, the risk is a little bit higher. Okay. We now have the um, availability of a cardiac MRI. Is there any role for that test in the assessment of a patient with chest pain? Yeah, there is. I think it depends. You can actually do pharmacologic stress testing with cardiac MRI, and we do have that available here, but the use of that will really depend on the local expertise and availability in the area. But there are some times where that may be reached to as a stress test as well. But other times I think about using cardiac MRI in chest pain is such as the evaluation of someone with suspected pericarditis or myocarditis. That would be another time where I think cardiac MRI is utilized quite frequently. Okay. Now, we haven't talked about the coronary calcification CT scan, and my understanding is that's more of a test for assessing risk of cardiovascular disease, right? Does that have any role in assessing patients with chest pain? 
there is a difference. So a, a coronary CT calcium score is a low-dose non-contrast CT. So as you mentioned, we're really getting an assessment of calcified plaque burden in the heart arteries. A coronary CT angiogram uses contrast, and we are truly defining the coronary arteries and seeing the lumen of the arteries and are able to see both calcified and non-calcified plaque. So there is a difference, and yes, I, generally the coronary calcium score, that is used more in the world of prevention and mm -hmm. assessing overall risk. Well, Katie, you've given us lots of good information. Can you summarize our discussion and maybe talk a little bit about, uh, in general, how we uh, choose these tests? Yes. So I'll try and keep it brief. But in, so my approach would be first is assessing chest pain. So history, physical, assessing those risk factors. And that's going to help you determine if it's cardiac, possibly cardiac or non-cardiac chest pain. Obtaining a baseline ECG in anyone with possibly cardiac or cardiac chest pain um, as a screening test and to, to use to help you determine if uh, their candidacy for other things. We prefer exercise when able when thinking about stress testing. An exercise treadmill can be considered in someone if they have a good exercise or functional capacity, they have a normal ECG and no prior coronary revascularization. When you're thinking about adding imaging, which it's reasonable to do in, in someone with an intermediate pretest probability of coronary disease, uh, if they don't carry that prior diagnosis, and certainly you're going to add imaging if they've had a prior cardiac intervention previously. You have nuclear imaging or stress echo as functional stress tests. Nuclear is your test of choice if there's a left bundle branch block or ventricular paced rhythm. Stress echo is really helpful if you need a structural evaluation and their major symptom is dyspnea. You can exercise or do pharmacologic stress with both of those modalities. Coronary CT angiogram provides you an anatomical evaluation and is really ideal on your younger patient population. It's really good at ruling out high-grade disease um, and when you're expecting less plaque burden. Cardiac MRI is a possibility for using for stress testing as well. And remember that in your patient who has known coronary disease, high-risk angina, or is maybe maximized on medical therapy, it is reasonable to talk to cardiology, and sometimes we do go directly to coronary angiogram. We've been discussing how to choose the best test when assessing a patient with chest pain. My guest has been Dr. Katie Young from the Department of Cardiovascular Disease at the Mayo Clinic. Katie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. This has been a great discussion. I learned a lot a lot. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to talk with you today. You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well. <laughs> <laughs>